If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark this morning. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28. Mark 12, verse 28. We'll read through verse 34. It's on page 848 if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. 848. Uh, y'all have heard the story, most of you have heard the story of my, uh, my troubles with Hebrew and seminary. Uh, and I've told this story before, I'm going I'm to tell it again. Uh, it, it shows, if nothing else, just that I'm, I'm a pretty big idiot. So I like telling stories like that. Um, I know y'all enjoy those stories too. Uh, in Hebrew, I failed three times before I finally passed. Okay, I'm not uh, a great Hebrew scholar. I know some Hebrew, but I don't know very much. And the proof of it is that I failed it three times. Um, now, the third time that I took it, uh, Amy and I had just got married, and she was intent on on me passing Hebrew, um, and so she stayed on top of me with my Hebrew. She studied vocabulary. She actually knows more Hebrew than I do. So for a full semester uh, in 2006, in the in the fall semester in 2006, uh, I took Hebrew and I studied and I studied and I studied. Uh, my Hebrew professor had a rule, though. Uh, he had a rule that if you had anything less than a B. You didn't pass, so a C didn't cut it. And he did that because he thought it was so important for pastors to know uh, their Hebrews so that they could read the Bible so that we could teach it to you. And so if you had anything lower than a B, you did not pass Hebrew. Well, uh, the way that grad school works is oftentimes you, you have uh, grading that, that takes place well after um, the, the class ends. I had actually begun the winter semester of Hebrew 2 prior to getting my Hebrew 1 grade back. I was in it for two weeks, two weeks of a four-week course. And I was visiting my parents here in Zachary, and I got an email from my professor, Kelly. I'm sorry, I can't let you continue in Hebrew 2. You did not get the B that was required. Now, the other story to this is that the reason why Amy married me is because I had promised her that I was getting an internship in Ireland whenever I graduated from, uh, from seminary. And so I had promised her that I was gonna, we were going to move to Ireland. I was going to have this internship. We were going to live in this great old castle. There were all these things that I told her to get her to marry me. Um, some of them were true. Some of them weren't. But here I was at my parents, and I received the email that said I had not passed Hebrew 1. When I figured up my grade, this was my grade. I had a 79.3. You needed an 80 to get in. He would round up a 79.5 to an 80. I had a 79.3, two-tenths of a point off. All right, I was close to passing Hebrew, to finishing grad school, seminary, on time, to having an internship in Ireland and living in Ireland in marital bliss for the rest of my life, two-tenths of a point, of a percentage point, and all of that was taken away. I was close, but I wasn't in. Well, today's passage, we see something very similar to that, where a young man comes to Jesus asking these questions Uh, important questions, questions that we need to be asking as well. And Jesus' response to them is, you're so close. But you see, you can be close to the kingdom without actually being in the kingdom. And we need to pay attention to this passage. So let me read this for us. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28. Hear God's good and kind word to you this morning. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. 
And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding this word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us this word, and we thank you for uh, the warning that it is to us, but also the reminder uh, that it is to us of your grace and mercy. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us all to see that uh, we don't need to just be close to the kingdom, but we need to be in the kingdom through faith in Christ and his finished work. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. So I want to see this passage in three ways this morning. We're going to see, first of all, the commandment that Jesus gives. Secondly, the concession uh, that this scribe, this man gives to Jesus. And then thirdly, the closeness to the kingdom. So commandment, concession, and closeness. First of all, uh, the commandment. Now, for a few weeks, we've been seeing in, uh, in the Gospel of Mark all of these groups of people coming up to Jesus. And actually, I think um, that this man is kind of a bookend to some things that have been happening uh, in the Gospel of Mark. If you turn back and look at Mark chapter 10, verse 17... Uh, you see there that a rich young man comes to Jesus and he asks him a question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And saying eternal life is a way of saying what must I do to be in the kingdom of God. Uh, and so for a few chapters now, we've had p- uh, people coming up to Jesus and asking Jesus things and Jesus responding. And now uh, here's a bookend to that where the last person is going to come to Jesus and ask a question. So that's the stuff that's been coming before. If you look down at the end of chapter 12, you'll see that uh, really Mark is driving us to the point where we look not at these, these men that are coming to Jesus, but actually that there's a woman that Mark wants us to see in the story. And it's a poor woman uh, in a response of faith giving to God. And, and all of these men, all of these important men, all of these in, intellectual men and smart men and, and proud and arrogant men have been coming to Jesus. And all of them fail in one way or another. But then at the very end, there's a woman uh, that Jesus holds up as, as a model of faith for. So that's where Mark is driving the car to. Uh, and, and we've seen where he's been up to this point. And this man comes to Jesus. He, he's a scribe. A uh, scribe was an expert in the law. Uh, it's hard to have an approximate uh, example of this, a good illustration today. It would be like a, a theological lawyer, someone who specialized in the law of the Old Testament. Uh, scribes were the, the most brilliant of the brilliant Jews. Uh, it was a select group of men who were able to go be scribes. We think of scribes as people that merely write down things, that copy things. That's not what they did. They were the lawyers. And part of their work as lawyers was copying the Old Testament. But 
uh, they were supposed to know the Old Testament law backwards and forwards. So he was a bright young man. Uh, and one of the things that the scribes would do in this day is that they would get caught up in theological controversies. Uh, they enjoyed uh, all of the intricacies of the Old Testament law and then trying to find um, maybe the paradoxes that were in there and trying to find loopholes, you know, like lawyers do. They find loopholes and, and they try to get us around the law and that's kind of what the scribes did. And one of the things that the scribes did all the time is they would ask, what is the most important commandment in all of the scriptures? And that's the question that this man asked Jesus. What's, what's the most important of the commandments? Uh, notice why he does it um, in verse 28. He doesn't do it to trick Jesus. He doesn't do it to, um, he doesn't do it to try to trap Jesus or get Jesus arrested like the other men have been doing. But he also doesn't want to know something, some legitimate answer like the rich young ruler did. If you remember back then, he says, Lord, how can I get eternal life? How can I live with God forever? That's a good question to ask uh, for the right reasons. This man doesn't do that. And we're given an indication of why he asked this question in 28. He saw that Jesus was disputing with these groups of individual or these groups of people. And he saw that Jesus answered them well. Now, that's a way of saying that this man was really impressed with Jesus' ability to answer questions, to answer theological questions, to get out of all the theological muck that's there. And so he was just, he just kind of liked the fact that Jesus was smart and could answer questions. And that's why he asks Jesus this question. He's not trying to trick him, but he wants to have his intellect um, tickled a little bit. He wants to have his mind kind of played with, and so that's why he asks this question. Now, the question is this, which, which commandment is the most important? Uh, but you need to understand the question that lies behind that question. It's not merely, what commandment do I need to do? But the question that lies behind it is, how do I really get to God? What can I do to make God happy with me? What does God expect of me? Those are some of the questions that lie behind what's the most important commandment. And in that question, it's the understanding that in order for God to be happy with you, you have to do something right. There's another way to ask this question. Jesus, tell me, what's the least I have to do to make God happy? Um, this is what every teenager does whenever he looks at his homework and he says, what, what's the least amount I have to do to get my teachers off my back? <laughs> That's the spirit of that question. It's not, how can I serve God with all of my heart and with joy? It's, you know, God is just like an angry school teacher and i got to get him off my back. That's what lies behind this question. And it has a definite understanding of what God is like. It's not that God is good and loving and kind. It's that God is nagging and hateful and really isn't for me. And so Jesus answered in this way. He says, and in a shocking way, he begins not with a commandment, but he begins with the nature of God. Deuteronomy, a quote from Deuteronomy 6.4, the one we read for a call to worship. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so what this does is it cements in this man's mind, you need to understand something about the nature of God. 
Namely, that there is a God and you are not him. (laughs) That's what the Shema does. And that's why the Jewish people would say it over and over and over. Even if they didn't believe it, they would say it as a way to remind them that there is a God. I am not God. And what I want doesn't matter. It's what God wants that matters. There is one God. You ain't him. Stop trying to be him. And yet, the man's question is, how can I bend God to my will? How can I get away with stuff by just keeping one or two of the commandments? And what the man is doing is he's saying, I really want to be God. And Jesus answers by saying, remember, you're not God. And then he says, now here are the the top two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Notice Notice how many times he says all in here, all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus says the fulfillment of the commandment, and this is the fulfillment of the first four of the Ten Commandments, to love God with your entire being, with all of you. That's what God expects. And then the second is like it. But instead of loving God, it's the love of your neighbor. That you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two top commandments. And here is what Jesus is saying. That it's not a matter of asking, what can I get away with? What's the least amount I can do to get on God's good side? But what's the maximum thing that I should do? And that is to love God with all of you. And it's not uh, that word love there. It's not one of the typical words that was used in the Roman or Greek-speaking world to, to explain love. This is the word agape love. This is a love that's almost always God's love for his people. And it's a love that means sacrificial love of completely giving of yourself. And so Jesus says, here's what God expects for you to sacrificially give up your wants, your desires, what you think is good for you. Instead, to give it all to God and, let, and love God in that way, sacrificially to give everything to him. And then he says, and to love your neighbor in that way as well, sacrificially. To give your neighbor all of your stuff. To give your neighbor all of your time. To not be upset at your neighbor and not to be trying to take from your neighbor, but to give and give and give. And then, you know, other places where when Jesus says, well, you know, to the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, your enemy is your neighbor. <laughs> You see the demand that Jesus puts on his people, that the commandment here is to love God and man perfectly. Now, we get the concession in verses 32 and 33 with the man, how the man then responds to Jesus. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, that there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all of the whole of the burnt offerings. Now this man had expected a theological tangle. He expected some theological messiness. But Jesus doesn't give him any of that. He doesn't give him what he wants. And so what he does um, is, is he gives him a simple, clear Answer, And it's an answer that the man actually says is a beautiful answer. Um, look in verse 32 where it says, and, and my translation says this, and, and this is a terrible translation. He says, you have truly said that he is one. Really what the man says there is, you have beautifully said. Now what the man says is that Jesus' answer is not just right, 
but it's beautiful. And here's what he means in that. It's, it's a true answer, but it's an answer that, uh, that you have to pay attention to. It's the sort of thing whenever you come into contact with real and true uh, objective beauty, something that is beautiful outside of you, uh, something like an LSU quarterback throwing a 50-yard touchdown pass with no one around him, something that never happens, a beautifully executed football play that you stand up and cheer, right? Um, it's a beautiful work of art. It's something that's beautiful that, that captures your attention. It's when a wonderful song comes on the radio and you're to, you meet, get to your destination and you don't want to get out of your car because the song is just so good and you don't get out until it's over. Something beautiful that has captivated you. And this man says, Jesus, your answer is not just true, but it's beautifully true. And he says, in his concession, you are right. Love is better. To love is better than to do what? Than to give burnt offerings and sacrifice. Now remember the context. Where is this happening? This is happening in the temple courts. Jesus, this is probably Tuesday before Jesus is crucified on the Friday. And Jesus has been going into the temple court area. And surrounding them are all of the the animals that are there to be sacrificed. And all of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of the priests and all of the religious stuff that's happening. And all of the people that are there doing all of the right stuff in order to make God happy. And here's this man saying basically that all of the stuff that was happening happening in the temple was pointless and worthless. He says, yes, sacrificial love toward God and toward neighbor is better than all of the thousands and thousands of of goats and rams and bulls and birds and everything that was being killed and slaughtered and sacrificed. That loving God and loving man is better than animal sacrifice. They are surrounded by the busyness of religious adherence. They're surrounded by people who are the most spiritual of spiritual. And this man looks around at all that and says, all of that is pointless. Jesus, you've hit the nail on the head. What God expects is not burnt offerings, not sacrifice. He doesn't expect church attendance or reading the Bible or being good or or all of those things. He doesn't expect for me to, to do all of this good stuff for him. What he wants is for me to really love him and to really love my neighbor. I want you to understand something. Uh, religious busyness is easy. All of the sacrifices and all of the stuff that people were doing, they were doing it because it was easy for them. The demand that Jesus puts on us here is much harder. Because it's not about doing things for God um, or doing things to make yourself look good. It's about doing things truly because you love God. Um, And it's about loving your neighbor in a way that is sacrificial and and hurts you. It's easier to just come to church. (laughs) It's easier to listen to a sermon. It's easier uh, to read your Bible. It's easier to do all of those religious things to look good than it is to truly love God. And I want you to understand that God's demand is so great here. It's not a mere feeling. It's not a mere... um, It's not a mere just like, like we think of romantic love of... Of just, of just wanting something. It's actually wanting something so much that you do something about it. 
and doing it all for the sake of God. It's going to work for God's sake and not your sake. It's loving your wife, not so you can get something from her, but so that you can give to her. It's, it's, it's way more than just a feeling here. And what you're saying, this is crushing. This isn't, this is beautiful, but it's crushing to us. It's like a, a two, ton, two tons of brick just falling on us. Because you realize, if you're paying attention, you cannot do it. Even here, right now, your heart is distracted and you're going after other things. When you should be paying attention to God and giving Him yourself, this is where it should be the easiest. And even here, you're distracted. Your mind is being pulled away from other things. You're not giving your all to God. And you're certainly not loving your neighbor. This is crushing because God, Jesus says that's what God expects. Now, that leads us to the closeness. And I want to do this very quickly. Jesus says, after in verse 34, after he hears the man's uh, concession, after he hears what he says, Jesus saw that he answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. This verse, by the way, is the one that converted John Wesley. John Wesley had been a preacher. He had been a missionary in Georgia. He, For about 15 years, he was a preacher that had gone all over the world proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wasn't a believer. <laughs> he did it because it was a way to make money. He was a very spiritual guy. He had been involved with a group called the Holy, the Holy Ones. Uh, George Whitfield, his brother Charles, and other groups of people. He had graduated from the greatest seminary that the world has ever known, Oxford Seminary in, in England. He was a brilliant preacher, but he wasn't co- converted until he heard this and was preaching through this. You are not far from the kingdom of God. And he realized, I, I'm not in the kingdom. I am, I am not far from it, but I'm not in the kingdom We understand this, that when this man answers the question, Jesus, you have answered beautifully, that he's revealing something. He's revealing first that he understands that God's demand is too great. That as a sinner, he cannot fulfill that demand. His second thing that he says is that the only way for us to enter into God's kingdom is not by human effort. It's not by doing more and more stuff not by living perfectly because we can't. And we know that because Jesus says you're close to the kingdom. The man gets the point that he needs to be in the kingdom, but he's not in the kingdom. And that leads to the third thing that he sees, that he's not willing to recognize his need. He was close, but he wasn't in. And that's where we get into the very last thing we see in verse 34. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus said you're close to the kingdom, and the man doesn't ask The next question, how do I get into the kingdom? He wasn't willing to recognize that he could not do it, that he had a great need that he couldn't accomplish. So what about you? What about you this morning? Are you in the kingdom or are you simply close? You know that old saying, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. We can be close to the kingdom of God. You can come week after week after week hearing the message of the kingdom and never understand that you can't do it because you need someone to keep these commandments for you. You cannot do it. 
You can't love God perfectly with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength, and you can't love your neighbor as yourself. You have fallen short of the glory of God. You need a Savior to rescue you from your shortness, from your inability to keep the commandments of God. You need Jesus in his righteousness for you. Now, there's a couple ways that you know that you're in the kingdom, and this is where the rubber meets the road for us. Um, It's not by keeping the commandments of God that you get in the kingdom, but it's by loving the commandments of God that you know that you're in it. We just read Psalm 119, or part of it. And over and over in Psalm 119, he says, Lord, I love your law. I love your commandments. I delight in them. Do you delight in the law of God? Or do you still see them as a crushing weight for you? You do not get into the kingdom of God by keeping the commandments. You get into the kingdom by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. But once you're in the kingdom, you delight in the law that God has given us. Do you see the evidence of living in Christ's upside-down kingdom? Because it doesn't make sense to this world. Do you see the evidence? Do you see the Lord at work in your life of loving people and sacrificially giving to people who can't do anything for you? Or do you only give to people because you think they can do something for you? What is your heart like toward people that are oppressed, that are hurting, that that can't do anything for themselves or for you in this world. If you find yourself going out toward them and loving them, then that's evidence of Christ at work in you. And you see that you're not living for the things of the world. You're not living for the money or success or for uh, any of those things, but you're living for the sake of God and living for the sake of His kingdom. So how close are you to the kingdom? How close are you to the kingdom of God? Now this morning, we have an opportunity to meet with Jesus Christ. And all those who are in the kingdom are invited to this meal, are invited to partake of this supper. And it's a wonderful reminder to us of what Christ has done for us to fling open the doors of his kingdom, to welcome us in I hope this morning that you are in the kingdom, that you're not just close. And I hope that you'll ask the next question if you're not in. How do I get in? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this message this morning. We thank you for the meal that we're about to partake in. Pray, Father, that all of us would be found to be in your kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his holy name. Amen.